Hello, and welcome to episode 29 of Killer Hangover. My name is Beth. And I'm Bettina. And this week, we have some great stories for you. I'm super anxious to tell my true crime story, but of course, we have to talk about this beverage mom has in front of us. The serial killer that I chose covered a few states, so mom had a choice. And mom, what state did you choose to cover today? I chose to cover Vermont. Awesome. We've not covered we that haven't state yet. Covered it, and I thought it'd be interesting. And I like maple syrup. <laughs> <laughs> so you found a cocktail with maple syrup? I did. Um, the old Vermont cocktail. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so Perfect. This is taken from tonewoodmaple.com. Okay. But that was not the only site that had this drink. It was listed several times. I thought it would be kind of fun. And I love what the author wrote here. Life lesson. The cocktails that taste unassuming can sometimes pack the most punch. (laughs) This is one of those cocktails. (laughs) (laughs) This very simple drink showcases the versatility of maple syrup. The sweetness doesn't overpower, but definitely shines bright in the citrusy cocktail. Now this, uh, what I'm going to say here makes one drink. Okay, of course, I doubled it because there's two of us. Oh, wow. (laughs) Good math, mom. (laughs) So this is just for one drink. One and a half ounces of gin, a half an ounce maple syrup, a fourth an ounce fresh lemon juice, a fourth an ounce fresh orange juice, and two to three dashes of orange bitters. Ice. Combine that all in a shaker. And yes, I brought a shaker this time. Yes, she did. (laughs) Vigorously shake the drink until combined, then strain into a chilled martini glass. Garnish with a slice of orange peel. Yeah, we're not doing the garnish thing. <laughs> so We want to drink the drink, not make it pretty. <laughs> so this is the Old Vermont Cocktail. Orange juice and maple syrup. All right, let's give it a shot. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, that's really, that is really good. It's different. And this is the first time that I have tasted this also. So It's different. I can't say I don't like it. It's got the orange juice, definitely. Maple syrup is not too sweet at all. I don't really taste any maple syrup. Maybe it that's just, just the sweetness. It must just add the back taste to it. I don't, I don't know. It's really good. A lot of cinnamon I'm getting. Mm-hmm. It's very refreshing. Yeah, I think because the orange juice. And that's interesting. Hmm. Yeah. And it's so easy to make. You know, it's, it's almost very easy like to make everything we have, it, you know, in the refrigerator anyway. Interesting. All right. Well, I'm just going to sit back and sip on oh, my blah, blah, maple blah, blah, blah. syrup drink and listen yeah, take to a big gulp. You. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I'm super anxious to share this story with you all. Now, when I say this man's name, some of you are going to be like, oh, Yeah. And others, like mom over there, sipping on her Vermont cocktail, are going to be like, huh, who's that? (laughs) And you, my friends, are in for a surprise. I'm going to tell you the story of the very meticulous, deviant killer, Israel Keys. Huh? Who's that? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) The year is 2012, and Israel sits in yet another interview with the FBI. He sits in his jail garb. I don't know what you call it. Jail attire. I don't know. Jail attire. 
<laughs> I don't know. And this season, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen, <laughs> it's this little red jail jumpsuit mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Eating a candy bar, smoking a cigar, drinking an Americano. Smoking a cigar? Interesting visual, huh? (laughs) Well, this was a very interesting dude. So Mr. Israel is so scary different than a lot of the killers that we've covered and the fact that he was such a meticulous planner. I mean, this guy had all his bases covered at all times. Even as he sat there in his jailhouse reds <laughs> sipping his hot americano he had a plan always a couple steps ahead of everyone he was in prison for the abduction rape and killing of samantha koenig now how does that earn him an americano you may ask i do and a cigar well let me tell you <laughs> samantha worked at a little coffee stand called common grounds in anchorage alaska oh, what a great name Like a little food truck, kind of a drive-up coffee stand. Okay. And the scary thing about all of this is that this crime is all caught on surveillance footage. Oh. So if you weren't quite sure by his name, maybe that's ringing some bells for you crime buffs out there. So you can watch this. It's out on YouTube. It's out on a bunch of links. I will definitely be posting a link to this on our social media if you want to watch it. So it's just before closing time. And Israel comes to the window with a ski mask on and he orders an Americano. (laughs) She makes his coffee and turns to hand it to him through the window. You then see a gun being pointed at her through the open coffee stand window. Is she the only one working? She's the only one working. Gotcha. You can't see him, but you can see the gun kind of coming through the window. Mm -hmm. And he starts demanding money. Samantha gives him money from the cash register and then... Gosh, it's just goosebumps everywhere thinking about it. You see him crawl in through the window into the coffee stand. He ties Samantha up with zip ties, then leads her outside to his car. Now, you can't see this on the surveillance footage, but Samantha tries to make a run for it. That is something he makes mention of in many of his interviews with the FBI, that she was a fighter. Mm. Catching her, he guides her to his car with a gun on her back. He walks her to his prepared white truck. And I say prepared because what he's done is he's removed the license plates. Mm. He's also removed anything from the truck bed that would make it describable to people that saw her or the situation. So it's just a white truck. He drove her to his home explaining to her that he was kidnapping her for ransom and that he needed her cell phone to make the call to her parents for the ransom. Well, she didn't have it. So he drove back to Common Ground's coffee stand with her still tied in his truck. Oh, my god! Retrieved the cell phone, drove off someplace, and sent two texts so the phone would ping at the random location that he drove to. Oh, One to her boyfriend and one to her father, basically claiming that she had had a bad day and was going away for the weekend. He then asked her for her debit card and her PIN number. She didn't have it. It was in her wallet. Which was back at the... No, gets even better. Which was in her shared vehicle with her boyfriend at their house. No. He then takes the battery out of the cell phone so the phone can no longer be traced. Mm -hmm. Takes her to his house. And ties her up in the shed outside his home, turning loud, like turning up the loud music so no one could hear her if she screamed. 
He tells her that he has a police scanner so that if any neighbors called about her or any noises, he would hear it. Did he really have one? He he might have, though. Honestly, knowing him, he probably did have one, actually. He then gets her home address as well as her PIN number and goes on his way. Keep in mind, this is February in Anchorage, Alaska, mm. tied up in a shed. He goes to the house, gets into the car, gets the debit card, and actually almost gets caught by the boyfriend. The boyfriend comes running out and yells at him and obviously does not know anything about him having Samantha or anything. Yeah. yeah. He just sees some guy you know, going through his car mm-hmm. and almost gets him. So it may not seem from all this running around that this man was a planner, but even though he was kind of bouncing around. He still had a plan was still covering his bases with a cell phone battery being torn out, telling her about the scanner. I mean, he just covered all of his bases. He sure doesn't get diverted. No, (laughs) he had everything he needed to tie her up. He had all of his necessities for, you know, different scenarios. I mean, he was prepared. So it goes further than this though. Okay, mom. So he wasn't stalking Samantha. He wasn't like searching for his type or anything like that. She was just a victim at the wrong place at the wrong time. So this is how he'd plan his killings. He'd find a location. And then from that location, that's he would pinpoint somebody randomly. Oh, so he but it's not even like he first. Was, but here's the thing. It's not like he was scouting out that location, waiting for a potential victim. He just knew maybe months prior that I think it'd be fun to do something at a coffee stand. All right. So let's Google. Common Grounds is the one in the area that stays open the latest. Okay. And then he just moves on with his life. And then a couple months later, he's like, oh, yeah, about that coffee stand. Let's just go hit that up right now. Oh, my gosh. Like a whim. So he didn't just do this in Alaska, though, where he lived. Oh, no. It's much worse than that. I was wondering where Vermont came in here. So Israel Keys owned his own construction company, Keys Construction, there in Alaska. But he traveled a ton to the lower 48 states. So what he would do was travel, scout out places down there, just like he did in Alaska. He'd find a place, figure out that's where he'd probably want to kill someone. And then he'd bury a kit. Oh, around that place. He would bury a bucket, usually like a five gallon bucket. And in these buckets, he would have weapons, guns, sometimes a knife, restraints, cash, Trash bags to dispose of bodies, little baggies, gloves, sometimes a shovel, silencers, duct tape, sometimes Drano. I guess that helps decompose bodies. Mm -hmm. All of these buckets, he would just bury them and then he'd leave. Sometimes not to return for years. Holy smokes. So this whole scheme is he would like fly into Chicago He'd rent a car, then drive like a thousand miles, say, out to Texas and then bury a bucket. So there's no way of tracking him that entire way. And do nothing but bury a bucket. Mm -hmm. And then come out two years later, do the same thing, fly into some random place, rent a car, all using cash and drive the car. There's no way of tracking any of that. So this leads me back to those police investigations. Mm hmm. Those cigars, maybe the Americano is making a little more sense right now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. They're trying Police to get information are doing from everything him, right? they can to get more information out of him. He it's wasn't like really Lucas. <laughs> exactly. He wasn't really a talker, more of a hinter. He's also 
way more intelligent than Lucas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Two and a half weeks after Samantha's been missing, her boyfriend receives a text message from her cell phone. Now, remember, this is the first time they had heard from her in weeks. Mm -hmm. All the text said was, quote, Connor Park, sign under pick of Albert, ain't she purdy? So they go straight to Connor Park, not knowing what they would find. Would they find Samantha there? They had no idea what what this even meant. They find pinned to a bulletin board at the park under a missing dog poster of a dog named Albert. Albert. A Ziploc bag. In the bag is a ransom note along with this Polaroid photo. Now, Mom, I'm going to show you this photo. So here's the photo. And what what can you can you explain the photo to the listeners? It is a young lady who looks terrified. Um, That's Samantha. And she's holding the newspaper, which obviously has the date on it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So the ransom note asks for $30,000 and actually asks for the money to be deposited into Samantha's bank account. Getting together with the police, the local community helps the family come up with the money and they talk to the bank, kind of like make a deal, that at any time that the money is touched, that the police would be contacted right Mm -hmm. away. Days go by and nothing. They transfer the money in and the money is not touched. touched. But then there are ATM withdrawals around Anchorage, a couple of which taken out $500 is taken out, which is the daily withdrawal, you know, amount. Thank you. Sorry. The video shows a man in a ski mask. And even though the bank is contacting police right away, like what are the police supposed to do to stand outside every single ATM in Anchorage? For a while, the masked man making the withdrawals is suspected to be her father. And he's put under tons of suspicion and followed. And I mean, that poor man. But then on March 7th, withdrawals from her account come out from an atm in wilcox arizona what then lordsburg new mexico then a few days later in texas then the transactions start moving east all video surveillance from the atms show a man in a mask but they also show a white ford focus oh good old corporal brian henry with the texas highway patrol is out one day just doing his job when all of a sudden he spies a white ford focus there's a lot of white ford focuses you used to drive a focus i know right so do they have a license plate number or something no so they just know where the last atm withdrawal was had and that it was a white ford focus so the area was put on alert to look for a white ford focus holy smokes they're stopping a lot of people exactly so mr brian henry was just in the right place at the right time and he sees a white ford focus and he thinks "Hmm, i'm gonna follow this guy let's see Mm -hmm. what's up sure enough the driver makes a traffic infraction so henry pulls him over then the driver hands him an alaskan driver's license oh then searching the vehicle clothing matching the atm videos a gun as well as samantha's debit card and cell phone are found in the car as well this corporal boom they got him good for him but where's samantha For a long time, Israel played that hinter card. And then one day, of course, while he's enjoying his favorite candy bar, chilled from the fridge, of course, he comes out and says it. Samantha is dead and had been pretty much the entire time. Uh, Yeah. After he abducted her and after the boyfriend had seen him at the car getting the debit card, he went straight back to the shed, raped and strangled Samantha to death. Then he went, packed up and left for two week cruise by himself. 
So he's gone for 15 days. And then he decides, you know, I kind of want that ransom. So he starts setting that into motion. Oh, my gosh. I was going to say she looks dead. I swear I was. And I Sorry to say, it. Mom, but that photo you saw of Samantha, is she is dead? already dead. Yeah. I was going to say that. And I was like, oh, Bettina, you're going way too So remember, gross. he's in Alaska. It's cold. She's left in the shed. So when he got back from his cruise, he actually semi-thawed her body out with a hairdryer. Oh, good Lord. And then sewed her eyelids open. Open. So he could take that photo and start the whole ransom thing. He dismembered her body, then took her to, oh my goodness, I'm going to mispronounce this terribly, Matanuska Lake, where he cut a hole in the ice and put her body in the lake. Mm. And then proceeded to go ice fishing, of course. (laughs) While in custody, Israel is really concerned with one thing. He does not want a media frenzy. He does not want drama. And the FBI really honor this. Huh? Their first press release on Israel was a year after his capture. Why would you honor? And all of this information that we know from him didn't even come out to the public until he's dead. So I'll get to that later. But but are they getting information from him by not going to the media? Little by little by little by little. Ooh, this guy is... He wants their trust and they want his trust. Mm-hmm. And it just... I mean... I listened to the podcast called Jensen and Holes, The Murder Squad, which if you haven't listened to it, it's great. It's with Paul Holes, which, again, if you don't know who he is, come on, y'all. He is the guy who captured the Golden State Killer. Um, So he has this podcast and they were playing tape for him from the FBI interview. And he like closed his binder in the middle of the podcast while they're playing it for him. And he just like got all irked and his... um, the other because host of the-, of the show, Billy Jensen, was like, oh, there he goes. There goes Holes. And Holes is like, if some guy were to say any of that shit to me, excuse my language, I'd be like, all right, fine. Screw you. Like, I'd get up and yeah. leave. I, he's, he just didn't understand why the FBI played so many, played it easy for him the way they were. Because he's, ugh. So all of these interview tapes that the FBI took are released. You can go on the FBI website. Uh, they're very long. And they're a lot of him talking in circles. Of course, so, he's leading And him. it's literally Ugh. all him just reiterating that he doesn't want media, doesn't want media, doesn't want media. He's a very odd sociopath in the way that he doesn't want media because he doesn't want his daughter ever clicking on his name and finding out what he did. I'm sorry, douchebag, but you should have thought about that before you committed. You shouldn't have done it. I know. It's, it's all just very frustrating. Again, he's a very odd sociopath because he had childhood friends that he still kept in touch with. He was very successful in work. He had long-term relationships without any sign of violence or anything. He even had and cared for a daughter. He was actually known to be a very good father. He's a scarier version of a sociopath because of this empathy, I think, that he can turn it on and turn it off so quickly. Oh. Like, I guess a vehicle he was seen driving around in one of an older, like in another case footage. I'm not exactly sure. But a vehicle he was seen driving around. The police take the vehicle in for investigation purposes. And it was actually his girlfriend's car. He gets super concerned about that. And he's like, I'll tell you more information about this case if you give my girlfriend her car back. Because she's really going to need it for work. What? And and he wasn't trying to hide anything. He was really was concerned. He that was she very concerned that she needed a car for work. 
And I'm just sitting there like, I wonder what she thought of that. Like, if that if that were me, I mean, she's totally blindsided by this guy being a bad guy anyway. And all of a sudden, he's so concerned to get my car back. I'm like, I'll get it, my own car. Like, I just, I'll get a new car. I don't know. I just. Wow. So in order to keep the media out of his case during his conversations with the investigators, he keeps dropping hints to other cases saying like, you know, you only know that I had anything to do with the case if I tell you. Because a lot of the cases that he had anything to do with were just basically called missing persons cases. Oh. He said in one instance he actually posed the body of one of his victims to make it look like an accident. Looking into the cases, they find that in fact, the death had been ruled an accident in reports. He admitted to police that when he decided to kill someone, that was it. There was no way out for that person. Samantha never had a chance. Oh. Without any of his admissions, police would have no clue that he had any involvement in any of these cases. Well, because they were all over, all over the United States. Remember, those kill buckets were buried in tons of states. They were buried in Alaska, New York, Washington, Arizona, Wyoming, and Texas, just to name a few. Those are the only ones that he actually admitted to. And without him admitting that, they would really have had no clue that that's where those buckets were even kept. So these videos, like I said, you can watch, but it's basically just he just keeps telling them there's so many cases I could close, but I need assurances that you aren't going to release anything and that you're just going to put me to death, basically. I mean, this guy was so meticulous with his killings. He also had this like weird moral code, if you can even call it that. Yeah. He said he would never kill children. I think because of his daughter. His daughter. Mm-hmm. He also could never kill mothers and he could never kill dogs. God. And his interviews <laughs> and his interviews, they started talking about books and they made mention that Israel had a lot of books in his cell and he was always reading and he seemed to really have a fascination with true crime books. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> they asked if he had one killer he looked up to or thought most interesting. He struggled with answering, making clear he didn't necessarily idolize this killer, but he answered with Ted Bundy, which is interesting to me because a driving infraction is how they were both picked up. Oh, that's right. They both have this, like, they were so cool, calm, collected during all of their killings and all of a sudden when they start, you know, a simple mistake out of their plan is when they both got caught. Plus, I don't know what your guy is but like ted bundy don't call him my guy (laughs) (laughs) but ted bundy is very unassuming i mean you would i mean he's very egotistical get it out mom (laughs) you would never looking at him you would never assume that he's a murderer i mean i think i look at israel with hindsight knowing that he's a creep but no i think he's very He's not as handsome as Bundy by any means, but he's you could definitely pass a guy on the street and not think anything of it. I mean, they're they're both they were both living such normal lives. Mm-hmm. Like I said, Israel didn't say like he looked up to him or wanted to be him by any means. But Ted Bundy, he definitely looked at as like, you know, very intelligent. And I think they both had they had a ton of stuff in common, I think. They, the FBI asked him, do you read these books thinking like they're study guides or do you get right. ideas from them? And he said he actually always just had a fascination with true crime starting when he was about 15 or 16. And he read the book Mindhunter oh. by John Douglas. <laughs> yes, it's on your shelf right, it's there. right there. I can see it right there. <laughs> 
The book really disturbed him, he said. He said it felt like he was reading about himself in those books. Huh? So I think he found a, con- like, he's just very intelligent and in tune with himself. And I think he knew he had that dark sense within him. So he wasn't talking about the reading- FBI agent. He was talking about the criminals. Right. And I think- he could relate to the book. And that's what Mindhunter is about. Mindhunter is about interrogating criminals and what criminals came forward and said so he he didn't see himself as the person talking to the criminals no he, he saw himself as i think he grew a better understanding of his darkness by these criminals that were talking 15 yes so he committed these crimes from 2002 to 2012 is when he was captured holy smokes they talked with him about ted bundy and the resemblances and how like it's almost like they have these split personalities. They can just live two mm-hmm, separate mm-hmm. lives. It's so crazy. But he also made mention to BTK. Oh, really? He thought BTK was the absolute worst. <laughs> he thought he was just absolutely stupid. And the way he worded things was like BTK was interesting. Like he, he kept saying that BTK, quote, had to kill an entire family. And that really bothered him that btk would kill the whole family because he didn't like children being killed and you know he was just kind of like i mean the guy just wanted to get his rocks off he wanted it was a very sexual thing for btk Mm -hmm. and then i think he was trying to go after the woman and then all of a sudden the husband was there and the kids were there so he kind of had to kill everybody Mm -hmm. and he just thought that there was no planning and that that was just really stupid and it was just all stupid to him (laughs) that's just And he would just be really messed up if he ever had to kill a child or a mother. His victims ranged in age, ethnicities, and gender. He really did not have a type. Oh, he killed males also? Yes. Well, apparently. There's no proof. Only only one body was ever found of his victims. No bodies have ever been found. Oh. Remember, he's also decomposing them with Drano and bags. And he is an extreme arsonist. So here's another thing. So he would rob banks and light fires places. And I think as weird as this sounds, that's almost why he could keep his killing crime scene so calm and collected and put together because he would get his kicks out of lighting fires and get the craziness of robbing banks. And then he could keep the killing scene so organized. He robbed banks and all up and down New York. And where these crazy, there's like a, a picture I saw of him in a mask and you can't even tell it's a mask, but it's him. And he has like a mustache and he, he, it doesn't even, it's crazy. And he did that for 10 years also? He did that for years. That's how he started everything. And he never got caught? Nope. So back to his victims, they were all over the board. And he did say in one interview I watched that he he did prefer the victim to be of light weight. <laughs> And the FBI asked, like, was this well, a that se- rules is me this- out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the FBI agent was like, is this a sexual thing or does this is this for disposal purposes? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. It makes it easier to for disposal. Oh. Quote, but it's not a deal breaker. <laughs> OK, never mind. He said that no one in his life really knew him. No one would ever suspect him. He could play the role as a normal guy as well as a killer. Bundy. I mean, holy smokes. Like I said, he was more of a hinter, but he did admit to at least one murder in New York as well as bank robberies and such and such. One day, Israel told investigators, quote, I could close a double missing person case in Vermont. 
He told them that he had left the bodies of Bill and Lorraine Courier in an abandoned farmhouse in Exes, Vermont. He led police to where the farmhouse was. When they arrived, they arrived to an empty lot. The farmhouse had been torn down. Oh, no. The bodies being taken with it. With Oh, and never found. They did not get enough evidence of this case to work on a conviction. He confessed and walked them through how he buried a kill kit about two miles from their house two years before he had committed their murders. So two years after he buried that kit, he flew to Chicago, rented a car, then drove over a thousand miles to Vermont, dug up the kit. They weren't chosen like he didn't see them and say, oh, yeah, that's that's who I'm going to kill. He was just like walking the neighborhood, saw their house. No kids, no dog. I guess he really liked the layout of the home. He could tell from looking from the outside what the layout of the home was, making note of where their master bedroom was. The home also had an attached garage, which is what he preferred because he didn't have to be wouldn't have to be seen. He could sneak into the house a lot easier. And that night, June 8th, he cut their phone line, broke in through a broken window. Oh, my gosh. He was wearing a freaking headlamp and rushed in and attacked them. And while they were sleeping in bed Uh. with a headlamp on, tied them with zip ties, put them in their own car and took them to the abandoned farmhouse. I mean, the whole thing is like a horror movie. So I'm going to spare you guys. I have a dog. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to spare you all the amazingly gruesome details, guys. He is a sick mofo like. But the two were killed out in the farmhouse. He used tools from his kill kit, put the bodies in the trash bags and left them there in the abandoned farmhouse. Just an awful man. God rest those that poor couple. I don't want to just glaze over their horrible deaths without giving a little bit about the couple, though. Because as I learned from doing my research from the Clutter family, I do want to honor them a little bit. Bill Courier was 49, was an animal care technician at the University of Vermont. And Lorraine Courier was 55, worked at Fletcher Allen Healthcare. They were both just really good people who people noticed that they were missing right away. Right away. Mm-hmm. The fact is there is not a lot out there on them. But they had been tortured and killed in such a terrible way that no one deserves. Again, I'm going to spare you all the gruesome details. I will say that Bill worked at trying to humanize himself to Israel by discussing and finding similarities between one another on the drive to the abandoned farmhouse. I don't know how it was brought up, but I guess they were both part of the same branch of the military. So they were. he was just really trying to humanize himself as the victim. But like Israel said, once he had it in his head that he was going to kill somebody, there was no. Oh, my gosh. You just made me so sad. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And Lorraine, she was an absolute fighter till the very end. When Israel was giving his play by play for her, she tried to escape so many times. She kept like trying to coax her husband into come on, man up, man up. Like, let's punch him. Let's get him. Like she was just very fierce. And really just another strong woman. And the abandoned farmhouse, what makes me so mad is when the crew came out there to tear down the farmhouse for whatever reason, the house is torn down. They said when they got there, it smelt of just decomp. Nobody went into the gosh darn farmhouse to even look. They just tore it down, assuming it was an animal. Yeah, I'm or sure something. they did because it had been abandoned. Oh, but that's just so frustrating that. Well, again, hindsight. I know. I know. You're right. 
So police only found proof, obviously, from Samantha's case and were starting to put together three other deaths. But he dropped hints to over eight cases. Police believed he had killed over 43 people. 43? Being one of the most prolific killers in U.S. history. So can I, can I ask, is it, did he usually kill one person or did, or? We don't know, mom. I mean, because mm-hmm. that 43 sounds like a big number if he killed double. We don't know because he only hinted at things and he covered all of his tracks. Oh we do gosh. not know. But the police have gone and recovered kill kits from wherever he told them they I were. I was going to ask you that So he, okay. they do know that he is telling the truth. They just, he just never admitted to any other killings. He'd only give hints to things. So they would just go on these black holes into trying to find what he was talking about in his hints. On December 2nd, 2012, Israel Keyes was found with self-inflicted wrist cuts and strangulation in his cell. A four page suicide note was found with his body that consisted of an ode to murder. Mm. The note was like a rambling poem. Where will you go, you clever little worm, if you bleed your host dry? Back in your ride, the night is still young. Streetlights push back the black. I neat rose. Off to the right, a graveyard appears. Lines of stones, bodies molder below. Turn away quick, bob your head to the seat. As straight through the stop sign, you roll. Loading truck with lights off slams into you broadside your flesh smashing as metal explodes i mean literally it's a poem that makes no freaking sense now i'm going to post a link to it in a lot of cases like the son of sam and his suicide note his suicide note left was kind of like that and like a poem and such but it did lead the fbi to his house and it led him to it was a code basically like a if you can call it that to other crimes and answers so maybe it still just needs to be gone through, but FBI didn't think that it really gave any answers. Wow. Recently, this year actually, and perhaps you saw it in the news because it was all over the news, but the FBI did release drawings. I guess there had been drawings drawn in blood found underneath his bed in his jail cell. The drawings showed 11 skulls and one pentagram leading the FBI to believe that 11 is the total number of victims. But we will literally never, never know. know. Wow. I told you we were about to go down a wormhole. <laughs> oh, no, he's brand new to me, so I'm really going to Google to see a picture of him. Cause... Yeah, and I'll post all these links, you guys. I'm going to post pictures of the drawings they found. I'll post his suicide note. If you guys can break code, who knows? <laughs> And he really didn't think his daughter would find out about all this. I, guys, I didn't even go to his into his like past and everything. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. But first of all, the guy has my birthday. Oh, January I seventh. Claim that one. I believe he had like nine brothers and sisters, so there was ten total. And at one point in their life, they did move into a one bedroom log cabin with all 10 kids. What? I know his mom did homeschool them as well. Holy smokes. There's no getting away from each other on that. No. And so, I mean, I know his childhood wasn't absolutely perfect, but he did go from there. Like he did join the military and Mm -hmm. he, like I said, he owned his own construction company. And I think those killers are the ones that scare me the most. Those are the ones that scare me the most because like Lucas, 
for example, just because he was the most recent and as well as Otis or Otis, Mr. Otis, Mr. Oddball. You know, they just had a really poor childhood and then weren't very well educated and they weren't sick. You know what I mean? Like, not that that gives an excuse to them killing or anything, but he was just well educated and that's what makes him scarier to me is that I could pass him on the street or sit down and order an Americano next to him at the cafe and have it. no freaking idea because he looks normal, sounds normal, owns his own business normal. I mean, just a normal average Joe that goes on business trips and sometimes robs a bank, sometimes lights a fire, sometimes kills somebody. You just don't. It's just so weird. And he didn't pick out his victims where like Bundy you know, right. girls were type. cutting their hair and changing, dyeing their hair so that he, because he was out on the street. He had a type, right. So he had a type. And I just, ugh. Plus, I mean, I'm sorry, but if Lucas was sitting next to me, I'd kind of notice him. First of all, because they said he stunk. Yeah, and he didn't <laughs> and have very many teeth. like 40. <laughs> so he'd kind of notice that if you were having a cup of a cappuccino or mm-hmm. <laughs> americano someplace but no that is so that's so creepy and the interviews are just super interesting guys he chuckles through a lot of it and i was gonna play the chuckle on the podcast but i think the podcast was scary enough i will post it to our facebook but he's just a, a creepy dude mm. but interesting thank you you, oh, you're so welcome. I love how you always thank me. Well, so polite. A lot of research goes into this. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm thanking you for the time doing that. Call me sick, but I enjoy the research. <laughs> All right, Mom. My drink is actually almost gone. That's very tasty. What did I say? It's dangerously Has easy a kick. to drink. Okay. Now that you saddened me with the story from Vermont. I know, guys. She actually teared up. <laughs> I did. I did. Sorry, I'm just guys. like, that was so stinking sad. Sometimes I can actually go to the, when you're telling these stories, my mind wanders like. Oh, you don't listen to me? No, I'm <laughs> I'm with Sorry. the victims. Oh, gosh. I, and tr- I, just, I like, know. I, oh, that's why I didn't even put in the details of what he did to these poor people. So I'm going to tell you about Eddie House. Yes, lighten it up a little bit, hopefully. The Eddie House in <laughs> Chittenden. Yep, that's how you say it. Chittenden, Vermont. Now, I'm not going to tell you about spirits or anything like that. It's going to be a little different, like you did, but I'm not going to have to draw anything. Oh, man, but that was fun. <laughs> it was. <laughs> and as you know, not everything in life or in the hereafter can be explained. This is especially true with the story of the Eddie brothers, William, Horatio, and their sister, Mary. The children come from a long line of psychics. Oh, cool. Their distant relative was actually accused of witchcraft and sentenced to be burned at the stake. Oh. But she was lucky enough to escape from the village before her death. And the children's grandmother could see into the future. And would go into deep trances and spoke to unseen people. Julia, their mother, could also see into the future, but learned to hide her gift from her abusive husband, Zephaniah, who said her powers were the work of the devil. 
He was extremely religious. It would make sense that these, quote, gifts would then, where? Be passed to the be children. Be passed to the babies, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was said that there were times the house shook. Where do they live again? Is it an earthquake? In Vermont. Oh. <laughs> do you guys have earthquakes in Vermont? <laughs> Disembodied voices were heard. And the children would... Oh, this is creepy. The children would vanish from their cribs. What? Only to be found somewhere in the house or even outside. What? <laughs> that would be terrifying. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I remember one time when Aiden was in his like big boy bed for the first time. We went to go check on him for his nap and he wasn't in his bed. <laughs> and we like looked around the entire house just calling for him, looking everywhere. I'm like in just crying. Alex is trying to calm me down. We're looking everywhere. And I just like squatted on the ground just to like cry because I was just, you know, giving up on life <laughs> at this point, thinking my son had just vanished. And I see a little foot poking out from under the bed. He had crawled underneath the bed, <laughs> far against the wall, and was sl- he was just fast asleep. <laughs> anyway, sorry. That would just be so scary if you just... <laughs> boom! There they are. <laughs> boom! There they go. <laughs> I don't think they saw him vanish. I think oh, that would have been even creepier. As the children got older, especially the boys, their powers became stronger. Their father would often see them talking and playing with unfamiliar children who would simply vanish when he appeared. So those children are pooping away. (laughs) Those children are pooping away. Yes. Not pooping. They're booping. (laughs) This angered Zephaniah and he would whip the boys whenever this happened. Unfortunately, the children did not receive much of an education as they were expelled from school and asked not to return. Why? Why were they expelled? This was due to things that happened when they were in the classroom. Oh, no. Books were thrown across the room from invisible forces. Desks would levitate. How was that their fault, though? How did they know that it was those children specifically? Well, it was a small town, small community, Mm -hmm. so... Rulers, inkwells, and slates would fly around the room. Oh, my gosh. I mean, can you imagine? No. It's like the old show Bewitched where she wiggled (laughs) her nose and things would just kind of fly around. At home, the children would speak in voices, not their own, and go into deep trances. These poor kids. I hope somebody's at least helping them through this time in their lives. (laughs) Zephaniah thought the boys were possessed. Of course he did. Yes. By the devil when they were in these trances and he would do unbelievably terrible things to wake them up. He would pinch them. He would beat them. And when that didn't work, he tried boiling water oh, no, no, on no, them no, no. and even put hot a hot coal in William's hand. What? But besides scaring the boys, he, did, he couldn't wake them up from their trances. Oh, gosh. It kind of makes me wonder, were these trances or were they having epileptic seizures or something i don't know no well epileptic seizures don't make other children vanish and things (laughs) fly around the room mom (laughs) i'm no doctor but (laughs) well like did that really happen i don't know why are you telling this story because it's like this well-known thing that this family was like this zephania whether he was really scared at this point because he has no control Right. over the trances or anything else or he was just plain fed up with it 
He sold the two brothers to a traveling show. What? He sold his kids? Where they spent the next 14 years of their lives traveling all over America and Canada. Here the boys were even more abused. Mm. They were locked in tiny boxes to see if they could escape. And as far as trances, even crueler methods were used to wake up the boys. They were poked, prodded, and punched. In some places, they were attacked by mobs who threw stones and even shot at them. Are you kidding me? It's said that William, one of the brothers, had a few bullet scars on his body because of this. In one town, they barely escaped being tarred and feathered. Now, remember way back when I talked about yeah, that yeah, and what yeah. a horrible Georgia. thing that was? Yeah. Needless to say, the brothers wore scars on their bodies as oh well as gosh. inside. The boys returned to the family home after Zebania died. They, their mother and sister, turned the home into the Green Tavern Inn. So instead of farming, they did this. The brothers began conducting seances and conjuring spirits. By the early 1870s, the inn became a destination for those looking to contact deceased relatives and friends. This interest in the spirit world had begun several years earlier in 1848. Oh, yeah, definitely. With a report about two sisters in upstate New York who could communicate with spirits using, quote, spirit rapping. And that's like taps. Knocking? Like (laughs) the dog's like, (laughs) (laughs) like tap two times if you're. Yes, or tap three times if no. If you're Martha, you know, whatever. So spirit wrapping by now in the 1870s a second floor room in the green tavern inn became a seance hall witnesses at these seances would report such strange and amazing things that chittendale chittenden <laughs> that's a hard name to say i'm sorry mom watch your cursing <laughs> chippendale <laughs> Witnesses at these seances reported such strange and amazing things that Shittenden started becoming called the spirit capital of the universe. What? The universe? Ah. (laughs) Of course, not everyone believed these reports, including yours truly. (laughs) One such person was Henry Steele Alcott. Alcott was a well-respected, successful attorney who had enlisted in the Union Army when the Civil War broke out. While enlisted, he became a special investigator to root out corruption and fraud in military arsenals and shipyards. He was a colonel when he retired from the Army and then was one of the three-person panel that investigated the assassination of President Lincoln. Oh, wow. So he was definitely up there, a very educated and logical thinker and intelligent man. So with the wealth of investigative knowledge, Olcott and a newspaper artist named Alfred Knapps headed out to Shittenden, specifically the Green Tavern Inn, to validate for themselves the validity of the stories. Together with Knapps, Olcott looked at every possible angle of the, quote, circle room, and that's the seance room. Uh, The seances were every day of the week except for Sundays. Oh, they were busy. He looked for trap doors. He looked for hidden passages, secret doors. He found nothing. The two men sat through weeks of seances. They would all be about the same. 
except for the spiritual visitors. Okay. William Eddy would enter a small cabinet and then the gathered visitors and they were like little benches set out for okay. the visitors. So they would be sitting there. The visitors would hear distant voices, singing and musical instruments, which would hover above the heads of the audience. Okay. Disembodied hands would wave and touch audience members. Oh, weird. It was quite a spectacular scene. Okay, so when I first read this, I thought the instruments were, you know, everybody was sitting on the benches and the instruments were flying around them. Right. That wasn't the case. So I, I want to describe this to you better. They would take an audience member okay. up front uh, with them. So it was just one member of the audience that the instruments would fly above. And that would be tapped by a hand that was not connected to anybody. But the rest of the audience would see it happening. Oh, okay. Okay. But it was in one specific. It was just one member that this was happening to. Mm -hmm. So I want to clarify that. (laughs) Yeah. The best was yet to come. The called upon spirits would emerge from the cabinet. Now, this cabinet is just basically what it sounds like. It's this very thin, like, closet almost. Okay. That maybe two or three people could fit into. That's it. Okay. And I'm saying maybe two or three, and they would be squished in there. It was just... an armoire kind of a looking thing? No, it was built into the house. You could walk into it, Mm -hmm. but it it wasn't big. Okay. Okay. At all. So the spirits would emerge from that cabinet, sometimes one at a time, other times in groups. Some were very visible, others were transparent. The spirits were of all shapes, sizes, and ages, even of different nationalities speaking foreign languages. Oh. One was like Russian. What? There were as many as 20 to 30 spirits that made their presence known during an evening. What the heck? Yeah. And these guys were going there for like a couple weeks. And they were always different spirits that were coming yes. through. Over the- and they all wore their national, you know, outfits and right. stuff. So if these were... Their spring wear. <laughs> Sorry. So if these were actors, first of all, these brothers weren't charging anything for these seances they weren't to be they weren't making any money off of these so are you sure they weren't because that just seems like quite the show to not be making any money if they were making any and i read that they did not ask for money for wow. these the inn was the thing that was really supporting him and that wasn't really doing a you know a great business so they weren't rich enough to hire 20 to 30 actors a night. And then plus the actors wouldn't be able to say anything. I'm an actor for the seance upstairs. (laughs) Plus all the outfits that they were wearing. It was different all the time. There's no way that they could have afforded getting costumes like that. Now remember, they had very little education too. Oh my gosh. So there's no way they could speak in all these different languages. So yeah, don't know. Alcott was slowly becoming a believer. He was familiar with magic tricks of stage magicians, but he had looked at everything and everywhere, and Eddie's were not using the same tricks that he knew of during the seances. During his 10-week stay at the inn... 10 weeks? I thought it was just a couple weeks. Oh my gosh, it's 10 weeks? 10 weeks. He witnessed 400 spirits and was convinced that the scruffy gruff eddie brothers 
He was convinced that these brothers could indeed communicate with the dead. He even wrote a book, it's called People from Other Worlds, in which he wrote about what he had witnessed. So this book has everything, including drawings of some of the apparitions, as well as the house and even blueprints of the house, showing that there are no hidden passages or stairways. Oh my gosh, this is weird. Eventually, William, Horatio, and Mary split up. Horatio moved into a house close by. He kept busy gardening, did occasional seances, and doing magic tricks for the children of the town. Magic tricks. He died in 1922. Mary moved to a nearby village and became a professional medium. William stayed at the house but became a recluse, not participating in anything that had to do with the spiritual world. He died in 1932 at the age of 99. Oh, wow. Some of the strange things that happened during the seance can be explained by magic trickery. So, like the hand and the hovering instruments. Yes. It was really a fake hand that was touching the person that was up there. And then a real hand was actually holding the instruments floating above them. You know, little eye tricks like that. But other things, such as the many visiting spirits, like I talked about, are harder to explain, if you can explain them at all. Yeah, that's really weird. Now, remember, Olcott was a disbeliever. It wasn't like he was going there because he believed this all. He, he was going there to disprove these brothers, and he couldn't. The Eddie brothers were so illiterate, they could barely read, let alone speak in foreign languages. They were also very poor. So there's no way, like I said, that they could have hired those actors. So were the spirits real? No one but William, Horatio, and Mary know that knowledge, and they've taken it to the grave. Oh, man. So is the house still there where they had the seances and stuff? It actually is, um, but now it's a uh, private high-life ski club lounge is what it's called, but it's private Oh, so you have to be club. There you go. So the house is actually still standing, but you can't like, you know, go through it or anything. Oh man, I wonder if they have any hauntings or any spirits still lingering from all. I mean, 400 spirits within 10 week span. There's got to be some still lingering around that house. Unless they just went back into the closet, (laughs) the cabinet and disappeared. That was good, Mom. I've never heard that. That's crazy. I know. I just thought it was interesting because, yeah, so I've never all, heard about it either. Is all caught the only one that has reports of these seances? Or, or no, I mean, of course. I mean, they become became nationwide known because which is just making me so mad that they didn't charge for these seances. <laughs> And maybe eventually they did. But I remember reading someplace because Olcott put it in his book that they weren't rich by any means. There's no way they could have hired all these people. So weird. Because they weren't making any money on the seances. Well, he stuck around for 10 weeks living in that house. So I think he just got to know them very well, felt bad for them, (laughs) and then wrote this book saying that they were telling the truth. Well, I don't know. That's pretty fishy. Well... As you thanked me, thank you, Mom. That was very good. <laughs> thank you. Welcome. Oh, guys, this was a good one. Ooh, we got spooked and-, and we got creeped and we got yeah, and this is all for you from you. <laughs> and we got a little tipsy on this drink there. So, 
Checked all the boxes twice. Next week. <gasps> Next same week is place, different time. Yes, episode 30. I'm not going to tell you where we're going. We're not going to tell you. What we're going to do is we're going to leave hints in the post that I post on Sunday. Oh, how fun. We'll see if you guys can guess where we're headed on Monday for episode 30. Yes. It'll be fun. Yes, it is. I'm actually super excited about it. All right, guys. Thank you so, so, so much. Again, email us your stories. Subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to your podcast. You can find us and all of the photos and everything we talked about in this episode on our social media on Facebook as well as Instagram. Remember our Patreon. We have a Patreon. $5 a month, you guys. We're going to get extra episodes out every month. A blooper reel and early release, early released episodes. All that goody stuff. All for just $5 a month. We really appreciate the support. The money will go towards the production of this podcast as well as uh, yummy sticky beverages like this one. (laughs) I'm sorry. My hands are covered in maple syrup. I don't know what I did with this drink. (laughs) They're actually sticking to the microphone. She can't get it. I'll be here next week, guys. This was fun, Mom. Cheers, Mama. Sure was. Love you, kid.